Good morning, brethren and sisters. I guess it's unusual for us to sing hymn 166 by itself. We normally sing it at baptisms, and we normally would direct the comments of that hymn towards the one who has just been baptised. But this morning, brethren and sisters, we sang it towards each other. It is not by accident that the last six verses of number six are where they are. It is because, you see, that blessing was given to the true Nazarite. That's why it's there. That blessing is for the Nazarite who has been faithful unto his vow. And it contains within it some very practical issues which are very important to the achievement of any Nazarite vow. And so, brethren and sisters, while we use that hymn for the purpose of baptism, that was not the primary reason that it was given in the Scriptures. And so I hope this morning in our considerations we will, we'll, we will see just a little wider in the matter of that blessing, Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. We've got a few things to cover though this morning and so it's going to be a task to, to pick the eyes out of what's left of Numbers chapter 6. You have your notes, so if I happen to miss any details, they are there before you. Those notes, of course, are basically Bible-marking notes, and for those who want to pursue that uh, in due time, that's the reason you've been given them. But, brethren and sisters, I just want to skip through the rest of Numbers chapter 6 and to pick out the highlights and the principles for ourselves as Nazarites unto God. That phrase that we read throughout this chapter, all the days, you will see it highlighted on your notes in blue, occurs in verse 4, 5, 6, 8, twice in verse 12 and verse 13. It is there, brethren and sisters, eight times. And eight is the number, as we pointed out yesterday, of immortality, a new beginning. We know that the eighth millennium will be the time when Yahweh will be all and in all. And so there's no accident, I believe, that the, that the word head occurs eight times, as we saw yesterday, and this phrase, all the days, occurs eight times. Because, you see, the point being made is that the Nazarite who made a vow before his God was typical of anyone, both then and later on, right down to our own times, who would make a vow unto God that they would serve him all their days, all the days of that vow. And we learnt, of course, that this is actually based upon Leviticus chapter 8. Let me just remind you of the content of Leviticus chapter 8. When Aaron and his sons were consecrated, they were told in verse 33 that they were not to go out of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation in seven days. There was to be a full cycle, service unto their God, their consecration to him was to be completed. It was to pass through the complete cycle of life, so to speak, lest they die, it says in verse 35. And we can see the import of that for ourselves, I'm sure. Now let's focus now upon the word Nezer. As we pointed out, Nezer occurs 13 times in Numbers chapter 6. 
And the, the previous occurrences, and there are, are only four of them, all occur in relation to the crown of the high priest's mitre. That crown, which was encircled by this plate of gold, tied with a lace of blue, on which was inscribed those words, holiness to Yahweh. And so this word, Nizer, which occurs so many times in number six, has only been used by the Spirit four times previously. And all of them relate to the high priest's mitre and the golden plate. Now I believe that's very important because you see, when we get to the end of chapter 6 of Numbers, we read these words in verse 27. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. You see, the whole point of the Nazarite vow was that men and women might emulate their high priest. That they might have Yahweh's name inscribed upon them even as the high priest bore that on his mitre. The mitre happens to be on the head. And we're going to see, God willing, at the end of our session, that that's where the Father's name is going to be placed in the day of immortality. The blessing of the redeemed is to bear the Father's name, his character, in their forehead. And they will be given that blessing because they have looked to and emulated their great high priest. That's the principles of Nazarites. Nazariteship. And so, brethren and sisters, let's just go through some of these issues here in chapter 6 and see if we can make those lessons firm in our minds. This word Nisa occurs five times in Numbers 6. Um, should I say five times in Numbers 6, the word Nezer is closely identified with the head. Just pick up a couple of these. Verse 7, for instance. It says towards the end of, of the verse, because the consecration, that's the word Nezer, the separation of his God is upon his head. Have a look at verse 18. And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall take the hair of the head of his separation. It's hard to miss the point, is it? That this term, Nisa, has to do with the separating of the head. Hence its use in relation to the high priest's mitre. So the key lesson in all that is that keeping the head separate all the days of the vow will lead to immortality. Let me just show you very quickly some of the passages where this word Nisa is used in relation to the high priest's crown. Here's Exodus 29, verses 6 and 7, and you will see there the word crown, Nisa. We go to Exodus 39, and verses 30 and 31. And you see here the plate of the holy crown of pure gold. The word crown is Nisa. We go to Leviticus chapter 8, verses 9 to 12, where it's referred to again. The golden plate, the holy crown. That's the word Nisa. Now I'm emphasising this because at the end of our session, if I can make time, we're going to see some very important relationship between 
the holy crown of the high priest and the fringe of the garment of every single Israelite. And there is a link between those two, as we shall see. But now, brethren and sisters, let's have a look at Numbers chapter 6 and verse 9. Because here we meet what I think is one of the most satisfying elements of this study of the Nazarite. We have the problem of defilement by death. And there in verse 9 it says, If any man die very suddenly by him. Now in the Hebrew, the word man is actually the same word as die. It reads, literally, die, die. Or as you can see here from uh, the, uh, the translation of Rotherham, but if one that is dying should die by him in a moment, suddenly. Now this is an unusual situation. The thinking Nazarite would ask, why should I be blamed for someone dying beside me? And if someone was to die amongst us, sitting alongside of us, and we hope that doesn't happen, but if that was to happen, and you were told that that defiled you, you would say, well, what have I got to do with that? I just happen to be sitting in the wrong place. So the thinking Nazarite would ask that question. How often would that happen anyway? So when a man or a woman came to take a Nazarite vow, this is one of the stipulations that they read, and the thinking person would sit and say, well, what does this really mean for me? Well, you see, brethren and sisters, it actually is a symbolic representation of unintentional sin through weakness. Transgression, not premeditated. And we know the words of the Apostle Paul, don't we, in Romans chapter 7? We don't even have to turn to them, so I'll put them on the screen instead. Romans 7, Paul says in verse 21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from, as it should read, this body of death? And Paul is referring to the Roman practice of taking a living prisoner and binding to his body the corpse of a dead man and leaving him so that the corpse as it rotted would eat into his flesh and eventually kill him. It would take a while. Can you imagine the horrors of that? And Paul saw himself saddled with a nature which had a bias towards sin, that even when he would do good, he found evil present with him. And we know all about that, don't we? Well, at least I do. And I'm sure you do as well. And he looked down, as it were. He's almost presenting himself as two people. He's got a body of sin, as it's called in Romans 6. 
with its inclinations towards sin. And he says, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Now can you see the relationship with number 6 verse 9? When the dead dieth suddenly by him, he is defiled. It's a reference to the unintentional sins that cross our path so often, brethren and sisters, through the weakness of our flesh. And how often do we fail that way? But Paul could say, couldn't he, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, the mind, that's what the Nazarite vows about, the mind, I serve God, but with the flesh, unintentionally, I serve the law of sin. There are many mistakes made day by day. There are many deficiencies. There are many things we fail to do. So what does God do for the Nazarite? It says that he provides an answer for him. And it's a marvellous principle, as we're going to see. Paul also, of course, made the statement in 1 Corinthians 10. Speaking about the frailty of our nature, he said, Wherefore let him let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Brethren and sisters, we know that by experience, don't we? That when we think we stand, we very easily stumble. It's one of the problems that I know is a difficulty for those who have to go through some intense activity, the speakers at Bible schools, for instance. The problem comes when the activity ceases. And you can be on a spiritual high and then stumble through the frailty of the nature you bear. We have absolutely no reason for confidence in ourselves. But we can have confidence in God. And look at this passage in number 6. Look what God does. Well, let's allow Brother Barling to summarise what this ninth verse is about. He made this comment on the days lost. The Nazarite was meant, he said, to be to every single member of the priestly people a living exhortation. An object lesson in holy living, an embodiment of the very notion of being an Israelite indeed. The days that were before, he says, shall be lost, because his separation was defiled, number 612. He had therefore to fulfil not only that part of his period of consecration, which in any case remained to him, but also the previous day service thus lost to him. He had in fact to begin his previous day service thus lost to him, uh, all over again and to begin his entire consecration afresh. The lesson for every reflective Israelite was plain. Each time that by sinning he was false to his status as one of the dynasty of priests, he had to begin afresh and make good his failure by consecrating himself anew to God. The lesson was a salutary one indeed and a real education 
in acceptable worship. Now that's what this is about from verses 9 to 12. It's about sin entering the life of he or she who is a Nazarite unto God. And God's answer is, make sacrifice. Verse 9 says, when he hath defiled the head of his consecration, he shall shave his head. In other words, he's got to make a new start in the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day shall he shave it. On the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest. So, he makes a new start on the eighth day. On the eighth day. Interesting that, isn't it? A new beginning. Then, brethren and sisters, he follows the ritual, shaving of the head and the offering up of certain sacrifices, two turtle doves and young pigeons, which is exactly what was required of the leper under the law. The leper who had been cleansed, and that was a rare case, but when it happened, he was required to make certain sacrifices and the Nazarite was to make exactly the same sacrifices and to go through exactly the same ritual because sin had entered his life. And we see he was to make a sin offering. There was a need for forgiveness. He was to make a burnt offering. There was a need for rededication. He was to make a trespass offering by the fact that he had robbed God of service, days of service, he had to acknowledge that he had robbed God. There was a trespass involved. And he had to start the days of the vow from the beginning. Now, brethren and sisters, I think you and I can see something in that for ourselves. Isn't that a marvellous provision? God knows that when we make, as it were, a Nazarite vow and commit ourselves to serve him for a lifetime, he knows the frailty of the nature we bear. He knows that like Paul, when we would do good, evil will be present with us. It is as though we are attached to a dead body. And he can deliver us, providing we take the steps that he has prescribed. We've got to make a new beginning. We've got to start all over again. And just like the Nazarite, it says in verse 12, he shall consecrate unto Yahweh the days of his separation and shall bring a lamb of the first year for a trespass offering. But the days that were before shall be lost. So he's got to go back and start all over again. And this is the principle of Ezekiel chapter 18, isn't it? The principle that where a man, a righteous man, stumbles and turns away, turns his back upon God, all the righteousness that he has done will not be counted to him in the day of judgment. He will be condemned because he's turned his back upon his God. But the same applies to the man who has been evil. If he turns from his wickedness and serves his God, like Manasseh did at the end of his life, all of the things he did before will not be counted against him. They will be forgiven. 
What a marvellous provision that is. It is humbling to man, isn't it? There can be no pride in man before God. For all of us have stumbled. And all of us have a need to recognise that and to start again. To begin all over again as though it's day one because the days of our vow are still before us and they must be completed. Every one of us can feel the relevance of that to ourselves. But now comes the completion of the vow. And we read in verses 13 to 21 of how the vow of the Nazarite was completed. And this again is very important. It points forward to our glorification and to the assumption of the role of priesthood. Let's have a look at it, verse 13. And this is the Lord the Nazarite, when the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation certain offerings, and the whole range of sacrifices under the law is made except for the trespass offering. There's even in there the meal and the drink offering, which of course point to bread and wine and the significance of those to ourselves. So he brought along all the sacrifices in order except for trespass. But there was one very unusual feature. If you have a look at verse 17, it says, He shall offer the ram for a sacrifice of peace offerings unto Yahweh with the basket of unleavened bread. Now, there's no mention here of leaven. But if you make a note, and this will be in your notes, to Leviticus chapter 7 and verses 12 and 13, you will find that under the law of Moses, when you brought a peace offering, you could, you were required in fact to bring leaven with it. And the element of leaven was there to remind the Israelite of the reason why he had to make a peace offering. The reason he had to make a peace offering was that he had sinned against his God. Fellowship had been broken down by sin. He needed to restore his fellowship with God. So he brought his peace offering and he brought leaven with it. That he might be reminded of that fact. But not here. When the Nazarite made his peace offering in verse 17... There was no leaven. And it symbolised the fact that corruption was to be entirely absent on this day. What day was it? The day of redemption. The day of glorification. The day of assumption of priesthood. You see, it symbolised the fact that when we come before our judge, brethren and sisters, we have to be without fault, without blemish. How can that be the case? Only through forgiveness. And so we see these little details which are inserted here that we might see the relationship of these things to ourselves. Verses 14 and 15 point out, as you can see there, the burnt offering, the sin offering, peace offerings, the meal offerings and the drink offerings. They're all there except for the trespass offering. Now, 
<clears throat> it's a fact that in this section on the completion of the vow from verses 13 to 21, that word Nisa occurs six times in that little context. And therefore we believe it denotes the end of mortal probation. This is what this is about. Now while I'm dealing with numbers, let me just point out that if you look carefully you will see that the term unleavened occurs five times. It's twice in verse 15, again in verse 17, and twice in verse 19. So there's reference to unleavened bread five times. Now we know that unleavened bread represents incorruptibility. And it's there five times, the number of grace and the gift of God we know is eternal life. And that's what this little ceremony here is all about. It's about the completion of a vow that leads to eternal life. Now we come down to verses 18 and 19. In verse 18 we read, that the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation. That's to say he, he will shave the hair of his separation. The focus is on the head. At the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings. So the hair is consumed by the fire that is consuming the peace offering. What's that about? Well, it's typical, I believe, of the surrender of mortality to take up immortality because of the head of separation. Here we've got that which denoted his separation and it is cast into the fire which is consuming a peace offering. Peace offering speaks of fellowship with God. It's clear, isn't it, what the principle is that our ultimate fellowship with the Father mentally, morally and finally physically in nature is dependent upon the head of our separation of which the hair was a symbol. In verse 19 it says and the priest shall take the sodden shoulder of the ram and one unleavened take out of the basket and one unleavened wafer and shall put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after, you can cross out the words the hair of, they're in italics, they're not there in the text, after his separation is shaven. So what we have here is a little cameo. You have to try and picture this in your mind, brethren and sisters. Because when a peace offering was made under the law of Moses, the most important part of the offering was the right shoulder. And that was given always to the priest because it was God's portion. And the priest represented God. So the most important part of the sacrifice was passed to the priest who was officiating. Look what happens here in verse 19. The priest shall take the sodden or the right shoulder of the ram and these unleavened cakes and shall put them upon the hands of the Nazarite. So the Nazarite is given the priest's portion. Because you see, 
at the end of his vow, his or her vow, he or she is going to become a priest for a brief moment. They're going to carry in their hands the priest's portion of the sacrifice. What a privilege that would be. In verse 20, we read, And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before Yahweh. Now a wave offering spoke of consecration. This is holy for the priest. With the wave breast and the heave shoulder. A heave offering was the offering that signified surrender. So a wave offering, the offering being waved before God, spoke of consecration. While that which was heaved towards him spoke of absolute surrender. But who's doing the waving? Is this the officiating priest? It says in verse 20, and the priest shall wave it. But where is the offering? It's in the hands of the Nazarite. And he is the one operating as the priest here, brethren and sisters. The Nazarite is the one waving and heaving that most vital portion of the sacrifice before his God. So for a brief time, the Nazarite, male or female, operates as a priest. That's stunning, isn't it? But that was the privilege given to the Nazarite. Because the whole point of their vow was to emulate their high priest. And they were given the blessing of doing as he did, just for a brief moment of time. And that's why it says at the end of verse 20, And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Now, wine and strong drink were absolutely forbidden the priests while they were officiating. Therefore, it was absolutely forbidden for the Nazarite during the days of his vow. But it says that after he has attained to being a priest for this short period of time, the Nazarite may drink wine. Now, God is not recommending that the Nazarite should go get on the bottle. He's not suggesting that he should rush away to the local pub, is he? That's not what this is about. Why does he put it there? Because you see, brethren and sisters, if we read this carefully, if we project it to where it belongs, this is about the attainment of immortality. And when you are immortal, you will be unaffected by wine. It's not going to go from stomach to befuddled brain. Wine won't be a problem for immortals. And that's what God is saying here. This whole ritual of the completion of the vow is about attaining immortality and becoming a priest in the kingdom age. 
Wine's not a problem there. Unfortunately, it can be a problem today. Now we come, in verse 21, to the wrapping up of this little section about the completion of the vow. This is the law of the Nazarite who hath vowed and of his offering unto Yahweh for his separation. Beside that his hand shall get according to the vow which he vowed, so he must do after, guess what the last word is? The law of his separation. You know, you would be hard pressed to miss the point, wouldn't you? <coughs> separation. The Nazarite vow, brothers and sisters, was all about separating the head, the mind, from the natural inclinations of the body, of rising above, of lifting the mind to divine things and mortifying the deeds of the flesh. That's what it was about. And Yahweh will bring his faithful Nazarites ultimately to immortality when they can no longer be affected by the problem of their nature. And so we come then to the blessing on true Nazarites. And Yahweh spake in verse 22 unto Moses. This is directly related to what's gone before. You've got the Nazarite law laid out. You see its culmination. And God speaks to Moses and he says, I want you to speak unto Aaron and unto his sons. And as you see, the object of priesthood was to multiply themselves. They were representative of God to the people. And they were to multiply, as it were, amongst the Israelites, people who sought to be like them, to emulate their high priest. Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Now they are beautiful words, aren't they? And there are very few of us who stand at a time when we are baptising someone and usually where this happens in, in our country, we sing that anthem immediately after the person has emerged from the water. Does that happen here in this country? Yeah, we also sing it receiving in, so we sing it twice. And there's very few of us who are not moved to the core when we sing that anthem at a baptism. You know why? Because you can't help but think of your own, can you? You can't help it. And you can't help ask yourself the question, how am I living the truth? How have I gone in the last 20, 30, 40 years since I made my vow to serve my God all my days? It's one of the greatest exhortations you can get, isn't it? 
But these are just not nice words, brethren and sisters. These are very practical words. What does it mean when it says, Yahweh bless thee? Now, I'm running out of time, but I really would like to take you to Acts chapter 3. End of the, of the chapter. Peter, talking to the Jews of his day, says at the end of verse 25, quoting from Genesis 22, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And then he explains what he means, what God meant by the term blessed. When he used that word blessed to Abraham, Abraham, I will bless thee. And in all, all the families of the earth will be blessed in you. What did he mean by the term blessed? Verse 26 is the explanation. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you. Now if this was the Pope, the Pope would stand there and say, I bless you my congregation, in Latin. You got the idea? It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. But what does Peter say? He sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. In other words, when God blesses, he gets involved in your life to turn you from your iniquities. That's what it's all about. And when a man or a woman makes a Nazarite vow, God comes from the other direction and says, you've made your vow. I'm involved. I'm here to bless you. I'm going to work in your life to turn you away from your iniquities. It might take me a lifetime, but I'm here. That's what blessing's about. That's a very practical thing, isn't it? And keep thee, it says in number 624. The word keep, shema, means to hedge about, to guard. So he sends his angels to minister to those who are heirs of salvation, to try and manipulate circumstances in their life so they don't come into contact with dead bodies. All he needs on the other side is cooperation and willingness to fulfil the vow all the days. And then he says in verse 25, Yahweh make his face to shine upon thee. The word shine is the word which means to give light. And it's a reference, brethren and sisters, to Yahweh building into our life his character. So he turns us away from our iniquities. He keeps us or guards us that he might develop in us his character. That just like as from the face of Jesus Christ shone forth the Father's character, so it will be with us. Verse 26, And Yahweh lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Peace. Shalom. The word is based on the idea of unity. It's a reference to fellowship. You see, it is as though God lifts up his face 
and he looks into your face, brethren and sisters. He lifts up his face because there is peace, there is unity, there is fellowship between him and the faithful Nazarite. And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel and I will bless them. I'll get them there. I will turn them away from their iniquities. Put my name. Well, we know what the high priest wore on his mitre and the object of the Nazarite was to emulate the high priest. We saw in those references in Exodus 28, 29 and so on reference to this golden plate and the inscription which memorialised the high priest's mental and moral separation to Yahweh. Well, it just so happens that that word plate that is used of the high priest is the Hebrew word sitz, T-S-I-Y-T-S. And that plate, that golden plate, was tied with a blue band or blue ribbon to the priest's mitre. So you can see it there. Here's the plate. It was tied with a blue ribbon either side. I want you to come with me, brethren and sisters, to Numbers chapter 15. There's the head of the high priest separated unto God. The head, as it were, of the ecclesia. He was the manifestation of the divine character. The father's name was written, so to speak, in his forehead. What about us? Numbers chapter 15. Look at verse 37. And Yahweh spake unto Moses, saying, Speak. Again, it's not command. This is not something that can be imposed upon you. This is something that requires volunteers. Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them. See? Bid them. Appeal to them. That they make fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a riband of blue and it shall be unto you for a fringe. You might wonder why I'm emphasising this word fringe. We all know, don't we, about the riband of blue. There's not a soul in this room that doesn't know about the riband of blue placed on the bottom of the garment of an Israelite who sought to walk within the bounds of the divine law, blue being the colour of heaven. We all know about that, don't we? But that's not what the scripture's emphasising. We focus on the blue cord, don't we? When you look at the high priest, what do you focus on? Do you focus on the plate or the cord, the blue cord, which tied it on his head? What do you focus on? The plate. That's why you see it says here in Numbers 15, did the children of Israel that they make them fringes 
in the borders of their garments. And on the fringe, they'll put a ribband of blue. Verse 39. And it shall be unto you for a fringe. So where's the focus? On the cord? No. On the fringe. Just so happens, brethren and sisters, that the word fringe is sis-sith. Hebraeus would be appalled. (laughs) It means a floral or wing-like projection, a tassel, a border, or a fringed edge. The Hebrew word is the feminine form of sits, the word for the plate on the high priest's mitre. The high priest's plate is in the masculine gender. This word fringe here is the same word, but it's in the feminine gender. Can you see what's happening here? You had a high priest walking around with a sit, masculine gender, head of the family, head of the ecclesia. And you had Israelites choosing to be like him, manufacturing a fringe which was like the plate on the high priest mitre and putting it at the base of their garments and hanging from it a blue cord because the high priest kept his plate on his head by a blue cord. You see that, brethren and sisters? Jesus Christ is our high priest and our head. He represented in his character holiness to Yahweh. And the ecclesia, his body, represented by the fringe which encircled their garment, with its blue cord, symbolising their need to walk within the bounds of divine principles dictated by the head of their family. Hence it says in verse 40 of Numbers 15 that ye may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. And they will be. And they'll come to this day. And John, who looked, saw upon the foreheads of the redeemed who stood there, the 144,000, the perfected ecclesia at that stage. And he saw the Father's name written in their forehead. 